When I was in the army, I pulled guard duty a lot of times. The purpose of guard duties to ensure what we protected was either, which was either soldiers or equipment or areas were protected from the enemy. Uh, soldiers are instructed to memorize your three general orders. And the very first general order is I will guard everything within the limits of my post and quit my post only when properly relieved. First general order reminds the guard that he or she is responsible for everything within the limits of the post while he is on duty uh, and is responsible for all the equipment, property, people, and, and must not give up and must not be a derelict of duty. The safety and security of all being guarded was depending upon the guard. If something went wrong or the enemy gained access, then the guards were held accountable and they were very real, very serious consequences. As believers in Jesus Christ, we also are supposed to have a guard duty that we're a part of and we are supposed to take this very seriously and we are given a general order about what to guard. We are to keep or guard our hearts with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Now the word keep uh, could be translated in some of the translations as guard or to protect or to keep our hearts with all diligence and the reason is given because out of it come the issues of of life. Remember in Scripture, the, the heart isn't the seat of the emotion as it is in our culture. In, in Scripture, the heart is the seat of the will. Out of the heart is what, what determines who we are and how we are. Right? According to Scripture, the surest way to know what our heart is like is to see what our lives are like. And when Jesus talks about this, He will say things like, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words, they mean something. They demonstrate something about what's going on in our heart. At the same time, our actions of our lives demonstrate what is in our heart. Jesus talked about things which defile. And He said these things flow out of the heart. And that is what defile us. Our our words, our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, all of those things, they flow out of our heart. So you and I, we can look at our words, we can look at our attitudes, we can look at our actions, and they will reveal to us a great deal about our heart, the condition of our heart. So you can see then why we're to guard our heart with all diligence, for truly everything, everything hinges kind of upon that, right? As my heart goes, so my life will go as well. And so... God gives us a piece of spiritual armor to protect and guard our hearts. Open your Bible to Ephesians 6. We're going to read verses 10 through 17, but we'll primarily be in verse 13. For this morning, it should be on page 898 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 6 and 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. 
And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Title of the message today is the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, Lord, to take what we learned today and apply it to our lives. Let us examine our hearts. Let your Spirit use your Word to examine our hearts. For truly, if we try to examine our hearts ourselves, we will make excuses We will justify, we will deflect away from what's truly going on. And we need the absolute standard of your word and your spirit to work and reveal the condition of our hearts. Make us to take the command to guard our hearts very, very seriously. Make us to see what scripture and the spirit reveal about our hearts. To see how important and significant that is. And guide us that we would take up the whole armor of God, including the breastplate of righteousness, that our hearts may be protected and the enemy would not be able to get in and to lead us astray. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say what you once said. Nothing more, nothing less. Oh God, give us ears to hear and give our hearts an openness to receive and obey what you have for us today. Make us strong in you and in the power of your might. Because Lord... We are either in the evil day right now or the evil day is coming and we need, we need to be able to stand. And we ask this in Christ's name for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. A Roman soldier wore a molded chest covering. It extended from the neck nearly down to the thighs. The breastplate protected the upper body, but most especially the heart for obvious reasons. You get stabbed in the heart, it's pretty well over because you're dead or you're bleeding out and you're going to die. The breastplate of righteousness protects our heart for the same sort of reasons. If the enemy gets our hearts, he wins. I mean, that's that's really as simple as that. If the enemy wins our heart, we're done and he's won in our lives. Now, as the name implies, righteousness is a key part of the breastplate of righteousness. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness, it pictures a commitment to be righteous and a commitment to do righteous. right? Just as in the Roman armor there were often layers uh, upon the, the armor that they wore. There are layers in the breastplate of righteousness that make up the breastplate. And we have to put them all on. There are two. And they both have to be there. It is not enough for there to be one or the other. It must be both. First, there is positional righteousness. Positional righteousness is the righteousness we receive when we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is where we are born again, where our condemnation is taken away, our sins are forgiven, and we are made righteous through Christ. Now, before we get to the righteousness of Christ which is given to us, we got to know why we need that. Why do I need Jesus' righteousness to be imputed, to be given to me? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer. We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now the filthy rag that Isaiah talks about. Our righteousness as filthy rags. There are several pictures given with the wording that Isaiah uses. The one that is the least graphic has to do with leprosy. Now if you've ever read about leprosy in Bible times, you know that what happened was they, they got this disease and it was a wasting disease and it ate away the flesh on their bodies. 
And as it ate away the flesh on their bodies, it would make running, oozing sores. From what I understand, they were, they were filthy, they smelled bad, they were really kind of disgusting. Uh, also, either they did or it was assumed that if that, that stuff that oozed out was to touch you, it would infect you with leprosy as well. So what lepers did was they would get strips of cloth and they would wrap around the parts of their body where there were these open running sores. And they would let the, the cloth stay on there until the pus would begin to soak its way through and run out of the rag. They would then take the rag off and they would burn it. Right? Because once it had been defiled by the leprosy, it couldn't be cleansed. It was never fit for use again. The only use for the rag after that was to burn it. And the cloth fouled by the open source of leprosy is part of what Isaiah is picturing as filthy rags. Now, as you can imagine, no leper ever unraveled the, the, the cloth off their skin and went to show people and said, look at this. I, I, I did this all by myself. I'm awesome. Look at that. Right? They didn't. Those things were disgusting. They took them and they burned them and they did it again to hide how awful it really was. But when we, as human beings, when we begin to hold up our good deeds and we begin to say, look at how awesome I am. I, I did this, God. Look at what I did on my own. It is as though we are holding up a, a leper's runny rag in, our eye, in God's eyes. Now, keep in mind what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah doesn't say all of our sin is as filthy rags. Now, Isaiah doesn't say all of our iniquity is as filthy rags. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Apart from Jesus, the very best we can do is a leper-soaked, disgusting rag which cannot be cleansed and is only fit to be burned. But through Jesus, we can be made into something different. God made Jesus to be sin for us. Jesus knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin for us so we could become righteous in Him. The moment we trust in Jesus as our Savior, God makes an exchange in our lives. Our unrighteousness is taken from us and it's placed on the cross. The righteousness that Jesus had and earned is then taken and placed into our account. So then when God looks at us as believers in Jesus Christ, what he sees is not our sin, not our failures, not our filthy rags, but he sees us as the righteousness of God through Christ. That is what Jesus makes us. That is what positional Righteousness is this righteousness that comes apart from our good deeds, that comes apart from anything we have tried, anything we have done. It is given to us purely by faith in Jesus because of Jesus. And the results of this change are profound, one of which is there is now no condemnation for us which are in Christ Jesus. We don't have a lot of time this morning to look at it. Take some time and read the verses before Romans 
Read verses Romans 7, 14 through 25. It's a familiar passage. Paul says things like, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that I do. I, I don't understand myself, he says. Who, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he thanks God for Christ Jesus. And then he says, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now there's a lot there, right? So when are we free from condemnation? Now, right? There is therefore now, right now at this point, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am free from condemnation. Right? There, there's not a future version of me that is more squared away than I am right now. And that version of me is free from condemnation. This version of me right here today is free from condemnation. If you have genuinely repented of your sins, you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are righteous through Christ, and there is therefore right now no condemnation for you. There's not a future version of you that is free from condemnation. Right now, as you are, with all of your faults, all of your struggles, all of your failures, you are free from condemnation. Being free from condemnation is not just for perfect disciples who live perfect lives. The Christian, described in Romans 7, 14-25, who struggles with sin, hates their sin, but at times fails and gives in to their sin, that disciple is free right now from condemnation. No disciple of Jesus will ever be judged as a sinner by Jesus. No disciple of Jesus will ever face the just wrath of God against sin because Jesus has already taken that in his or her place. The disciple of Jesus is freed, forever freed, from the penalty of sin and the condemnation of sin. Take a second and let that great truth sink into your mind and your heart. What would it mean for you in your daily life? I mean, if you knew for sure there really was no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Not, not no condemnation because I did what was right today. But today I struggled. And then today I failed. But even in the failure there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. What would that mean for you in your life? What would it mean for you? If you could know for sure you were fully and forever free from condemnation. That you were truly free from the penalty of sin forever. Now the positional righteousness layer of the breastplate of righteousness is important. Because it protects us from condemnation. Right? Because while there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, there is plenty of condemnation from other places. There is condemnation from our own conscience. There is condemnation from our own heart. There is condemnation from other people around us who know us. And because we are in a spiritual battle against an enemy who has wiles that he uses to destroy us. There is condemnation from the one Revelation calls the accuser of the brethren. Many times Satan's accusations will come in the form of reminding us of our failures. It may be a failure recent. It may be a failure far off. You ever just have those days and you, you remember the mistakes you've made, the sin? Not, not, let's not say mistake, let's just call it a sin. Sin, failures, and rebellion. And think, gosh, how could I be saved if I really did that? Or maybe we blow it in a massive way. 
Not because there's nobody in here perfect. None of us are just like Jesus. We struggle, we fall. Every one of us. And we fall. And while we're down, Satan comes along and is like, look at that. You're not a Christian. Jesus hasn't forgiven you. You'll never. You're going to hell. You're, you're done. You're done. You know it. In your mind, you know it. You're worthless. I mean, he comes and he tries to kick us when we're down. He'll tell us we're worthless. He'll tell us Jesus has no use for us. He'll tell us God will never forgive us, that we were never truly saved to begin with. He will attack us and make us feel condemned despite the salvation and righteousness we have received from Jesus Christ. Condemnation is one of the greatest weapons of Satan. And he has wiles, lots of things. We often think that what Satan wants to do is lead us into terrible, wicked sin. And if he can lead us into great acts of wickedness, he's won. Well, truly. If he can lead us into great acts of wickedness, he has won. There's no doubt. But if Satan can take a, a child of God for whom there is no condemnation, if he can take a child of God for whom they are righteous through Christ, and he can make them feel condemned and worthless the point they will sit down and they will not serve Jesus. That's a win. He has still won. Right? All he ultimately has to do to win is keep us from being active in our service to Jesus. He doesn't care how he keeps us from being active in our service and devotion to Jesus. Can he keep us from being active in our service and devotion through great acts of wickedness? Yes, and he wins when he does that. But can he make us feel so worthless and so condemned and so much that we have felt so much that Jesus would never use us and so we just sit down and give up? Is that still a win? Yes, that is still a win. All he needs, all he wants is to make us stop serving Jesus. Because, listen, Satan can't take away your salvation. Satan can't affect God's love for you. Read the end of Romans 8. Neither height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Satan cannot make you unsaved. But if he can make you feel unsaved and you live unsaved and you act unsaved, he still wins. He is an accuser. And he is good at his accusations. He has had thousands of years to perfect his craft. And he knows just what condemnation to bring into your life. To make you feel the lowest and the most worthless to keep you from doing anything. Condemnation is a powerful tool in the hands of the enemy of our soul. And one of the reasons he's so effective. With his condemnation. It's because he is a liar who convinces us. Condemnation from him. Is really conviction from the Lord. Right? Because Satan. When he comes to tell us we're condemned. He doesn't say. Hey I'm the devil. And I'm telling you. You're a horrible Christian. So we're not going to listen to that. He makes it and we think. We think it's God telling us that. We think it's God. Saying. That's it, I'm done with you. We think it is God saying, this is it, you're useless to me, You're, you're no good, you're of no value. And if we begin to believe that it is God who thinks these things about us, God who says these things about us, it is overwhelming. It will absolutely destroy us. 
Because it will sink into our hearts. And it will fester and defile and ruin. And we will give up. And Satan has won in that moment. The positional righteousness layer of the breastplate of righteousness reminds us. No matter what we've done. We are righteous in God's eyes through faith in Jesus. Our righteousness is based upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The positional righteousness layer of the armor of righteousness reminds us there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. This piece of God's armor will protect our hearts and keep us from believing Satan's lies, doubting our salvation, and giving up on serving him. We have to know who we are in Christ. We have to know what God has done for us through Christ. That guards our heart. There is positional righteousness. But then, there is also practical righteousness. In one of my classes at Randall University, we were assigned to read a book by a pastor named Chuck Swindoll called Improving Your Serve. And overall, the book was fine, but there was one quote that was really phenomenal. It stood out to me then, and I still think about it years later. More than any other quote I've seen, this quote sums up what many people in our day seek from God. Here's what Swindoll says. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul. Not enough to disturb my sleep. Just enough to equal a warm cup of, wh- of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. Now, I, I, don't want him to, I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Swindoll goes on to say, that's it. Our inner self doesn't want to dump God entirely. Just keep Him at a comfortable distance. $3 of God is sufficient. A sackful, nothing more. Just enough to keep my guilt below the threshold of pain. Just enough to escape eternal flames. But not enough to make me nervous. Not enough to push around my my prejudices. Not enough to nitpick at my lifestyle. As preposterous as that sounds, it accurately reflects what many people in the church believe about grace and want from God. They want enough Of God's grace and enough of God to keep from being punished for their sins. They they most definitely want the no condemnation through Christ Jesus. But not enough to compel them to do anything else. People who believe they just want enough of God to make sure they're saved. But not enough to actually take what Jesus said at face value and deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow Jesus. And that's what grace is. Right? That's what grace is, isn't it? Grace 
is for those who don't want to go to hell but don't want to serve Jesus either. Grace it is for those who mean who want to be forgiven and then live however they want to just so long as they make nominal gestures toward God every so often. And if someone believes that and if they only want $3 of of God then teaching about being righteous typically pushes them away. Teaching about doing righteous will push them away. Teaching about being pure in heart will be hard to swallow. Teaching about faith without works being dead, it, it will seem, it will just, they will just about gag on it. Teaching about taking up your cross to follow Jesus, they will turn off their minds and think about the last Desperate Housewives episode they watched, rather than listen. And in their minds, for those who want $3 worth of God, those sort of teachings are opposed to grace. Grace is for those who just want to be saved, but not be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. The question, are those teachings really opposed to grace? Or is that idea about grace flawed? Well, the Bible has the answer. Titus says the grace of God. So we're talking about grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So there's grace. We're talking about grace in this moment. But what does grace do? Teaching us. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. So notice what grace does. It not only forgives our sin, makes us right with God. But grace also teaches us to do certain things. First, it teaches us not to do certain things. Now, the grace of God is never an excuse to live in sin because the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The grace of God is never an excuse not to do what God will tell us to do because the grace of God actually teaches us to live the way God would have us to live. This is what practical righteousness is. Practical righteousness is not only being made righteous through the grace of God, but being taught by the grace of God to do what is righteous. The flawed idea about grace, the flawed idea about I can be righteous but not do righteous, weakens our spiritual armor and leaves us susceptible to the wiles of the devil. This is why we need practical righteousness as well as positional righteousness. Practical righteousness is just the way we live our lives. Being made righteous through Christ has practical implications on how we live our lives. We are not only made righteous through Christ, we do righteous because of Christ. And if we want to guard our hearts with all diligence, then we have to do both. Be righteous and do righteous. Those who only want $3 worth of God want to be righteous without doing righteous. They want to be saved from hell. They want a Bible verse that they can use to fight off Satan's accusations. But they do not want to live for Jesus in any noticeable, devoted way. Very often, those who want $3 worth of God, they will live in what Scripture calls sin. 
And they justify it by saying, but I've been made righteous through Christ. There is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. The grace of God covers my sin and allows me to live this way. They've wrongly, and make no mistake, it is wrongly assumed. The grace of God allows them to live however they want to. They are secure and they are comfortable in their faith despite the fact they consistently live in sin. They might accept their sin hinders their relationship with God and other believers a little bit. But they will absolutely reject any concept that a lifestyle of rebellion against God says anything about their salvation. And yet, Scripture says something different. Jude says, there are certain men who crept in unaware, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude wrote to a community of believers Telling them to earnestly contend for the truth once delivered to the saints. Part of the reason he wrote this was because there were false teachers coming in. And what they began to teach was the grace of God was a license or an excuse to sin. They taught, in essence, to use Swindoll's language, they taught grace was $3 worth of God. But if you repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus Christ, There's no condemnation for you and you can live however you want to. Sin doesn't matter. Devotion doesn't matter. Nothing nothing matters. You just, grace covers it all. And Jude writes to contradict that. Now, as I look at this, keep in mind, that's just what Jude says. Right? That's not, I didn't read the Greek and give you an interpretation of it. This is just what Jude says. And notice what Jude says about these teachers of this doctrine. First, they are called ungodly men. I mean, how many of us would say God calling someone ungodly is not a good thing, right? I mean, Jude's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it is the Spirit of God moving him to write this about these people. So the Spirit of God moving him to call these men ungodly certainly doesn't paint them as a picture of righteousness that we ought to follow, right? He also says they are condemned. These men teaching this doctrine are condemned. They're they're not actually saved anyway. This is why they're ungodly. It's not that they are saved but are teaching something a little bit off. No, no. They're ungodly because they're unrighteous. They're unrighteous because they're unsaved. And they are condemned. The wrath of God will still fall upon them. Hell will be those men's eternal home. And in teaching the grace of our God as lasciviousness, they have denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Through their teaching, they have denied Christ and made a mockery of what He did on the cross. Surely, if we believe in a Savior who died on the cross for sin, sin can't be no big deal, right? Surely, if sin was the reason Jesus suffered, then surely sin has to be serious. It can't be... A minor little thing in life. And so surely the Jesus who died for sin would deliver us from sin. And not just leave us in sin. So see the grace of God not only forgives our sin. But the grace of God empowers us to overcome our sin. The grace of God empowers us to live godly lives. 
It delivers us from ungodly living and empowers us to live a godly life. Grace is not in any way permission to live an immoral life and then claim it's because we're free because of grace. You will not find anything in Scripture teaching that you can be righteous and then not do righteous and it's the same thing. You cannot separate the two. There is no being righteous without doing righteous. And there is no doing righteous without first being righteous. Trying to be righteous without doing righteous is not putting on the breastplate of righteousness and it leaves us susceptible to the enemy. Trying to be righteous without doing righteous is not putting on the armor of God and it leaves us susceptible to the enemy. And in the evil day, we will not stand in that moment. The enemy wins if we try to be righteous without doing righteous. He wins because through our lifestyle of sin, we're aligning ourselves with him. And I cannot oppose him in prayer if I'm aligning with him in my life. Satan will win. Because sin gives him a foothold in our lives from which he can attack us in further ways. Satan will win because sin always enslaves. Sin always enslaves. Either we master our sin or our sin will master us. Always. He will win because sin defiles our hearts. Disciples of Jesus are meant to have pure hearts. They are meant to have clean hearts. Sin defiles is what Jesus said. It defiles what Jesus intends to turn clean and pure. Satan will win because sin hardens our hearts. The longer we go in sin without repentance and confession, the harder our hearts become toward our sin the harder our hearts become toward the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the harder our hearts become toward the things of God in general. The longer we sin, the harder our hearts get. And there comes a point, Scripture says in Hebrews 3, our hearts get so hard, we actually depart from God. Sin always drives a wedge between us and Jesus. Cannot walk in the light of Christ And in the darkness of sin at the same time. The book of Amos says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Jesus is always walking in the paths of righteousness. As the good shepherd, he is always leading us in the paths of righteousness. I cannot walk with him in the paths of righteousness and walk in the paths of sin at the same time. He's walking this way. And sin is leading me this way. And I have to choose. Sin will always lead me away from Jesus. Satan wins when we try to buy $3 of God. Satan wins if we do not, are not careful to put on the armor of practical righteousness as well as positional righteousness. In order to put on the breastplate of righteousness to guard our hearts, we have to be righteous through Christ and do righteous because of Christ. Both are critical. Remember Paul says put on the whole armor of God. 
takes both layers to be able to stand in the evil day and then having done all to still be standing. I must come to Jesus and let Him make me righteous. But what Jesus does in making me righteous produces something in me, a difference, a change, so that I will then live righteous. So I ask you today, are you righteous? And if you would say yes, the question is why? As we've seen this morning, it's not because of anything you've done that you are righteous. It can't be. If you say, I'm righteous because I'm a good person, you're not righteous. If you say, I'm righteous because I'm a good spouse, you're not righteous. If you say, I'm righteous because I'm kind, you're not righteous. If you would say, I'm righteous because I'm a church and I'm a faithful churchgoer, you're not righteous. Righteousness is only given to us through faith in Jesus. No matter how sincere we are, no matter kind we are, no matter what else we do, if we do not first come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we are not and never will be righteous. But then, once He has made us righteous, it moves out in our lives. So if you are righteous through faith in Jesus, does your life show this? Jesus calls what He does in us being born again. I mean, even the name of that implies a drastic change, doesn't it? Paul refers to the change in believers as being changed from glory to glory. Being a new creation. So how are you different because of Jesus? Not different because you're married instead of single. Not different because you have kids instead of being With no children. Not different because you're older. Different because of Jesus. Because you have been born again. As Christ has made you righteous. How are you living that out? There ought to be ways. All of us should be able to look in our lives and see things Jesus has done to change us, to make us into new creations. This is a part of living righteously. And without that, we are vulnerable. So today we have to decide, have I put on the armor of God? Have I come to Jesus and been made righteous through Him? And because of that, am I doing righteous? If so, praise the Lord. You keep going. You keep going. It will be battles. There will be struggles. And the enemy will oppose you. But you keep trusting in who you are in Christ and what Christ has done. You keep living out what Jesus has done in you. But if you're here today and one of those two is missing, you're not sure you're safe. You're not sure you're free from condemnation. You look at your life and your heart reveals words that are sin, thoughts that are sin, actions that are sin, desires that are sin. My friend, you are vulnerable to the enemy. You must repent of that. You must confess it. You must forsake it. You must. Or in the evil day, 
You will absolutely fall. Satan will win in your life. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. And we'll have it. We'll take a moment and pray. But just feel the weight of what we've talked about this morning. Resist the urge to push back against it. Instead, recognize the pushback comes from the world, the flesh, or the devil. At no point will the Spirit of God or the Son of God call you to do anything but be righteous through Christ and do righteous because of Christ. Recognize in this moment you have a choice to make. You will choose in this day, in this time, you will choose Jesus or you will choose something else. I urge you, I beg you, choose Jesus in this time. The altars are open if you want to come forward, if you want to pray where you are, pray, but let's use this time and cry out to the Lord.